0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor David Lindenmeyer who is based at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU. He joined me to talk about the critically endangered mountain ash forests and ecosystems in Victoria's central highlands, as well as the politics of the forest and the proposed Great Forest National Park. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 R FM with Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is a professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at Australian National University. and he joins me on the phone from Canberra. Hi, David.: Hello, Amy. It's lovely to have you on the show and thanks for um, spending your time with us to talk about a really important topic and something which you are very, very well across. So I'm looking forward to drawing out your insights today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So, first of all, the area that uh, we're going to be talking about today is the Central Highlands in Victoria. And it's my understanding that you have been researching alongside your colleagues, but definitely you um, in particular have been doing so, looking into the mountain ash forests in the Central Highlands, which are actually not that far away from Melbourne's CBD. Is that right?
1: That's correct. I've been working in those forests around Healesville, Marysville, Warburton, Mooji, Powelltown, that, that area, since 1983. And by and large, it's only about 90 minutes' drive from the MCG. So it's very close to Melbourne, but it's a part of the world that almost nobody in Melbourne actually knows or appreciates. And, and I think that's a real shame, because these are truly majestic forests, amazing places, lots to discover, and really should be a playground for a, for a great city. And hopefully more people in Melbourne might take notice of of what an extraordinary place it is.
0: It is a beautiful place, deeply affecting. Um, I went there about a week and a half ago on a Saturday uh, to Tulangi State Forest to look at the giant uh, trees there, the mountain ash trees, and also um, the rainforest, which is just also uniquely beautiful um, in itself, very moist. And the bird sounds are quite phenomenal too. Just walking through, you hear so many different bird songs. It can be quite a shock coming from a city area to be surrounded surrounded by so much life so that's something that struck me so I'm hoping uh, we can really draw out now the aspects of this particular area and the mountain ash forest so first of all when we're talking about mountain ash trees what makes them particularly special because I understand they are the world's largest or tallest flowering trees but what about them makes them particularly unique within this forest and ecosystem
1: Oh, gosh, there's lots of amazing things about mountain ash. Uh, as you said, the tallest flowering plants in the world. They're also some of the world's fastest-growing trees. So when when these trees are very young, they can put on more than a metre per year in growth. So a 70-year-old tree can be 70 metres tall. So if, if we go to the next, the, the largest tree of all, that's the redwoods, the giant redwoods of, of uh, California, the giant sequoias, those trees reach their top height of around about 1,200 years old, whereas Mount Nash is doing that within about 200, perhaps even faster. So extraordinary growth rates, incredible productivity of these forests, and and really such an extraordinary diversity of, of uh, birds and mammals and, and other creatures, many of which we don't even know very much about. So really quite an amazing place. Uh, unbelievably beautiful majestic trees and then many layers in the forest as well so underneath the the canopy of these uh, enormous trees there can be a rainforest layer there can be a tall shrub layer a tree fern layer um, a low shrub layer and a ground layer so really quite different in many respects to many other parts of the world in terms of how much biomass is there and how much biodiversity occurs in these kinds of forests
0: Indeed and and it's all interconnected and one of the key aspects that draws that out is what can happen in mountain ash forests particularly when there are wildfires that occur and how then it also creates seedlings or the seedlings then drop to create more trees. Could you share with us the natural disturbances that occur in a mountain ash forest and uh, we'll move in later to human disturbances.
1: So the, the natural disturbance regime in these forests are rare but very high intensity and very high severity fire. So intensity means the amount of heat that's produced, and the amount of heat produced can be colossal in these forests during these very rare fires, and you know, it's close to approximating what probably happened during the Second World War in Japan following the, um, the dropping of, of uh, various atomic bombs. And then also very severe. Now, severity means how much vegetation is, is consumed by, by the fire. So they're quite different things. But characteristically, you have very high-intensity fire that's also very severe. What happens is that as the flames reach up into the canopy, the fruits of the eucalypts, so these woody fruits, then stimulate it to release their seeds. And they release literally millions and millions and millions of tiny little microscopic seeds which is really quite remarkable when you think of such a tiny seed that grows into such a huge tree. So unlike most eucalypts around Australia, which can be burnt and then recover naturally, so the tree isn't killed, in the case of mountain ash forests, often during these very high severity fires, the majority of trees are killed. And the next crop of young trees is actually amongst the millions of little seedlings that pop up uh, immediately after the fire. Now, the really interesting thing about this is that trees show the opposite life history strategy to animals. So what tends to happen with animals, uh, including humans, is that as we get older, we get less fertile. So the older you get into your middle age and then later age, the less offspring you tend to have. Whereas in the case of trees, it's the opposite. So as time goes on and the trees get older, the more of their energy gets gets diverted into producing seeds and reproduction. And so what we've actually found after the big fires in 2009, after those fires, what we saw was that the biggest crops of germinants or baby plants on the forest floor was actually underneath the old forest that had been burnt. So what happens then is you may have literally millions and millions and millions of seedlings all starting off the race for light. And they all grow as fast as they possibly can to win that race for light. And what happens is that when you start with millions of seedlings, very soon you have uh, 100,000 seedlings, because the others die. And then from 100,000 seedlings, you'll have 10,000, and it goes on that way. And the numbers of these trees thins out very rapidly, as does the forest. So by the time you get back to an old-growth forest, maybe 200 years later, you might have 40 or 50 large old trees across a hectare of forest. So start with tens of thousands, if not millions, end up with uh, a handful, you know, a couple of dozen, three or four dozen trees. So quite an interesting lifestyle. What we found is that sometimes these fires aren't so intense or so severe that everything gets killed. And then we find that there are trees that have fire scars on them, a bit like a church door. And that tells us very much about what's happening with the dynamics of fire in the landscape, because these church doors tend to be on the opposite side from where the the fire front has come. And then the tree is able to heal itself, stay alive, keep growing, but there's a little scar, or sometimes a very large scar, on the other side of the tree, which tells us about the past disturbances that have happened in that system.
0: Right, and so talking about old-growth mountain ash forests, particularly in this central highlands area, just how much of of the forest more broadly is old-growth? Because I know there has been a great deal of contestation around definitions of old-growth over time and even more recently by the state government.
1: Yes, that's right. So we think of old-growth trees these days as trees that have very large branches, very small canopies, and usually have very large hollows. And those, those kinds of features normally develop in a tree that's about 190-plus years old. The sad thing in the Central Highlands is that uh, probably historically there would have been somewhere between 30 to to 60% of the forest would have been old growth. Now it's around about 1% or less and the definition of old growth keeps being changed by the state government so that it allows more and more forests to be logged so what happens is that the state government is presently continuing to change the goalposts so that they can relax the laws about what areas can be be cut and what areas can't but the the reality is that the vast majority of this forest now is is dominated by very young forests and those young forests don't have many of the features that are important or animals, but also some plants. For example, mistletoe is a very important resource in mountain ash forest, but it's largely a structure or a feature that's found only in very old trees. And so, there are some species of birds that are associated with that mistletoe, but uh, those birds are really now very rare in the forest. Mistletoe bird is a classic example, uh, and that's because old growth is rare, and associated plants like mistletoe is also very rare.
0: And within this mountain ash forest area in the Central Highlands, I'm wondering where exactly are the old growth areas located there? And if people wanted to visit them, where should they be directing their interest?
1: Well, there's almost no old growth left. There's a few patches now in the, the Borbore area, out past Tangil Brand in that part of the world. And then there's a, some small patches uh, east of Marysville. And then the remainder, uh, again, very small patches uh, deep within the water catchment, which aren't accessible to the public. And that's to keep the, the water quality high and um, the, the uh, integrity of the water supply system for 4 million-plus Melburnians uh, keep that intact. So places like Marysville, you can go out past Marysville, out on the road towards Wood, Woods Point. With some, some nice patches of old growth forest there, and then out past, uh, out towards Mount Borbore, there's still also a few small patches of old growth forest and occasional very large trees. And in a place like Telani, for example, Telangi State Forest, where you, you were the other day, there are some occasional little tiny patches of old growth forest with some truly extraordinary trees in them.
0: Mm. And would that be al- along the Calatha Giant Tree Walk Trail?
1: that's right, there's there's one tree in particular, the Kalatha Giant, which is really, really something special. Mm. And that's probably one of the, the the most straightforward and easiest trees to be able to see that's uh, truly colossal. Another one is out past Powelltown on the road between Powelltown and Gee and that's the Ada tree. and that's also reasonably accessible and and quite an extraordinary tree to to actually see. And uh, really it's, it's something that more and more Melbournians really should do because that's where almost all the, the city's water comes from. It's uh, very important for maintaining a clean, clean atmosphere, good air to breathe and it's really quite a remarkable place just to go and have a look and see what an amazing forest can look like.
0: It's It's actually really hard to articulate just how beautiful and awe-inspiring it is to be there. As you're saying, the smell of the forest is so unique and beautiful and clean and moist. And um, you walk away and smell your clothes and you can smell the forest on you. And interestingly, when I was looking at the Kalatha Giant and a few of the trees around it, you say there that there are um, these, I guess, hollows that often occur in old growth trees or older trees. Trees. And in some of the research that you've published with others, you've mentioned that it can take up to 120 to 150 years before hollows like that are able to be used by animals such as possums and gliders. Is that part of the reason um, why the Leadbeater's possum, for example, and the greater glider are threatened within this broader ecosystem?
1: Uh, that's the principal reason, uh, and that is that those animals spend uh, in the case of leadbeater's possum, the animal spends 75% of its life living inside a large old tree. Uh, and in fact, it's not only just one large old tree. These animals regularly swap between different den trees as a strategy to to make sure that they're not predated by owls. And so a colony of leadbeater's possums or a pair of greater gliders are going to need a whole series of different nest trees, or all these great big den trees to move between to be able to survive. Now, the problem is that uh, historically there was an enormous amount of timber harvesting that went on in those mountain ash forests. In fact, there was as much timber coming out of Port Melbourne as there was out of Seattle, even though Seattle has a way larger timber catchment through those Douglas fir forests in the Pacific Northwest of the USA. So there was a, an enormous amount of pressure on those forests for a long time. And almost all of the old growth was liquidated in those forests very early. And then what has also happened is that normally the fire regime should be one of these very uh, very intensive and very catastrophic fires about once every 75 to 115 years. But we've seen 10 major fire events in the last century in these Central Highlands forests. So the combination of fire... And logging has really changed these entire landscapes quite dramatically so they were once dominated by extensive areas of very old forest and now it's the opposite they're dominated by very young areas of forest with only very small patches of very old forest embedded within them so a lot of animals are simply not evolved to deal with not only the amount of disturbance, but also the lack of these key resources—these very large old trees—and that's why we see animals like Leadbeater's possum in so much trouble. But now we're seeing other animals like the greater glider. And the greater glider has uh, it's, its numbers have slumped by nearly 50% in the last 17 or 18 years, and the, the yellow belly glider is also in trouble. And many aspects of this forest are really deeply disturbed and the system is really close to collapse if there's not something significant done fairly soon.
0: Absolutely. And uh, in one of the ecological risk assessments that uh, you and colleagues put together, I think it was in uh, about 2015, or at least it was published in 2015, spoke about, uh, well, you modelled various scenarios, 39, um, and that there is a huge chance of ecosystem collapse by 2067. You're talking about the animals and how they're affected, Also, then, when when we're looking at the trees and the types of disturbances they experience, both natural, which is wildfire, which you're talking about, and also human disturbance, which would be logging, these trees, when they are disturbed, they take 20 years to reach sexual maturity to then be able to produce seeds at all. Um, So there's that kind of real need to actually give it enough space to grow. And then my understanding is often if mountain ash trees don't flourish in those areas or don't regenerate, then there are other tree species that will come in to replace them. Is that correct? Yes,
1: you're you're spot on. But the reality is that... um Trees like Mountain Ash need many, many years to start producing viable crops of seeds. And as I was saying before, after the 2009 fires, the places that produced the most seed and the most young germinants were actually in the old forest. And yes, while there was a little bit of seed production in the younger forest, it was significantly less, way less than what we saw in the older forest. So the danger here is that if these forests burn too frequently what happens then is the forest is not old enough to produce viable seed, enough viable seed, and the forest gets replaced by things like wattle. And that means a a whole number of things. First of all, there's not the habitat for animals. The second thing is that the amount of carbon that's stored in these forests is greatly diminished, and this is really important because we're looking at some of the most carbon-dense forests you'll find anywhere on the planet. The third thing that's really important that should really send alarm bells ringing in Melbourne and that is that almost all of the, the city's water supply comes from these forests, and the water dynamics of those regions will be massively altered if these forests collapse and are replaced by acacia. Now Melbourne already has the most expensive water in the world, and if you are to see further depletions of the water supply for, that, for the city, then you're going to be in massive trouble. Now this is the water supply for more than 4 million people, And already some water modelers are predicting that Melbourne is going to run out of water within 10 years. So really what needs to happen is that the government needs to get its skates on and it needs to seriously think about making sure that its policies don't create a train wreck. And I I have to say that it's not only this present Labor government, but successive Liberal governments before that, as well as other preceding Labor governments that have led to Uh, the problems here in terms of their poor forest management policies and not thinking deeply enough about the really important ecosystem values of these forests for the largest number of people. And particularly the water issue here is absolutely crucial.
0: Absolutely and the evidence is really clear and damning and I just want to talk now about the human disturbances in more detail and that uh, in particular is clear fell logging in this area in the central highlands because as I've read in some of your work there has been in the past, a justification of Clearfell logging, which was based on a premise that it mimics high severity wildfires and therefore uh, the biodiversity in that forest would be unlikely to be affected. Now, all the evidence shows that's just not the case. I mean, what is the case? What is the difference between Clearfell logging and the fires that occur in that scenario versus a wildfire scenario? Oh, gosh, Amy, how long have we got? We could talk <laughs> quite about a few this minutes, feel free. Or,
1: we, could talk, we could talk about this for the next two or three days. Yeah.
0: But
1: the, the, strong, the stark reality here is that uh, fire and logging are basically very different kinds of disturbance processes. Uh, fire essentially leaves uh, standing, living and dead trees. Uh, many of the understory plants naturally recover. For example, tree ferns, uh, musk, daisy bush... Uh, so, essentially, those things don't happen in a clear forest. In a clear forest, almost all of the trees are removed. Uh, those that aren't removed are nearly always killed or very, very badly damaged in the subsequent regeneration burn. Plants like uh, tree ferns, rough tree fern, um, soft tree fern, populations of those are depleted by up to 96%. Other plants like musk daisy bush are essentially eliminated. Plant species richness is is uh, reduced by nearly 50%, uh, the list goes on. Essentially, the system is is dramatically changed. Mm. Now, the other thing that's really important here is that this is these are not independent processes now. So when a forest is clear-felled, what happens then is it's regenerated with a very dense stand, almost a wheat crop of young seedlings, uh, germinants that are really established in these systems, And to to our horror, we've discovered that these areas are now far more fire-prone than they would have been previously. So logging actually increases the fire burden in these forests, which partially explains why we've had so many successive fires uh, in the last 50, 60, 100 years. And so these processes don't, they're not independent of one another. Uh, Logging essentially leads to increased fire-proneness but also the system is not dealing with one or the other. It's not dealing with logging or fire. It's, it's dealing with both kinds of disturbance processes and they're interacting and creating these cumulative neg- negative impacts on the entire landscape. So there are massive differences. Uh, some are quite easy to explain. Some of them are more complex, but the overall outcome is that the system is radically altered and the entire processes of, of fire recovery, of hollow development, of landscape pattern and heterogeneity, all of those things are now so radically altered that the system needs a rest. It needs to be wrested from these uh, environmental insults that come from widespread clear-felling for the system to be able to regenerate the old-growth components of the system which give it greater resilience, not only to climate change but to other subsequent disturbances. And without that, without that chance to to recover, then the system has a very high risk of collapsing.
0: Mm. And let's talk about climate change, because that is a a really important factor here, particularly because uh, temperature and precipitation in the mountain ash ecosystem are really quite important. They're really mild and humid winters and cool summers. And as you say in your report, um, the mean annual temperature goes from 7.2 degrees to 14.1 degrees. So it's a very unique climate that anyone going will recognise when when they visit there and so therefore the impacts of climate change would be quite significant.
1: Um, the, the, it's not the case that they would be, that it's the case that they are. Mm. Um, we, we've already been recording now significant climate signals in these forests. So what we're seeing is, uh, for example, a huge pulse in the mortality of large old trees during the millennium drought right through that system. So uh, we saw background levels of large old tree death at probably 20 times what you would normally see in a forest that wasn't subject to the kinds of temperatures that were almost unparalleled during that millennium drought. Uh, we're also seeing evidence of some species of birds basically moving to much higher elevations than they were previously and departing sites at lower elevations that they previously occurred. So a good example is a, this magnificent bird called the pilot bird got this most extraordinary call that that bird now seems to be moving uh, to cooler, wetter, higher elevations uh, in the alpine ash forest which is neighbouring the, the the mountain ash forest. So the, it's not a case of where climate change will occur. It is occurring and the signals are showing a very clear and present danger.
0: And so now if we're looking at what you're talking about which is that we need to give it Arrest. And not just temporarily, which is what Minister D'Ambrosio has proposed for one particularly small site in the Tulangi State Forest uh, due to the threat to the greater glider, but we also uh, presumably need to be looking at this whole region of the Central Highlands and taking a more coherent and broader approach to that region. And in your expertise and, and professional opinion, what actually needs to be done? to preserve what currently is and then for it to actually uh, regenerate and improve.
1: Well, I think the clear the clear outcome now is that both ecologically and economically the most sensible decision here is to move the uh, native forest logging industry out of the central highlands forests and move it into the plantation sector. So we need the we need uh, a move towards the Great Forest National Park, and very quickly to preserve the city's water supply, to lock up large amounts of carbon as part of Victoria's contribution to tackling dangerous climate change, which is now occurring. We have to tackle climate change, otherwise we're gonna be in enormous trouble. But there are also extraordinary tourism opportunities from these same forests. So we've got water supply, carbon, uh, tourism, But also, in the process of converting these areas to uh, a large national park, we reduce the fire risk across the system and the risk of killing people in very dangerous, high-severity fires. That's really important. Now, if we look at this economically, as we have done, we've used the United Nations and World Bank's approach to systematically accumulating the economic and environmental information through an accounting process, we actually see that Victoria will be significantly better off financially and economically without logging these forests. So we will lose about $12 million a year to the economy by not logging those forests, but we will gain several tens of millions of dollars in extra water and, and many, many more tens of millions of dollars through uh, tourism outcomes. And so essentially this is a, a very strongly revenue-positive outcome when we look at this in a holistic sense. And really that's what we elect governments to do, to make good economic and environmental decisions for the whole population, not, not basically to hand uh, a huge amount of power and resource at almost no cost to a small number of of people, including a Japanese-owned paper company. That's what the economic accounts are showing. They're showing that essentially both Liberal governments and Labor governments in the past and presently are handing a huge subsidy to an overseas company with very little economic return to the state. And, you know, to me, that's akin to economic vandalism, uh, which is coupled with environmental vandalism. And I, I just don't think in a solid forward-looking democracy, we should be doing those kinds of uh, half-assed kinds of things anymore.
0: And in a submission that you uh, wrote in response to a discussion paper in 2016 uh, for the state government, you spoke about how um, the Central Highlands region is one of the most productive and heavily logged native forest regions in Victoria, and particularly looking at uh, the jobs that are tied to native forest logging. Actually, that accounting study reveals that there are very few direct jobs um, that are involved in this field, And, uh, and as you've said... Really, plantation forests um, are still going to offer a similar quality and um, and can really be a substitute for native forest logging.
1: That's exactly right so so in more recent uh, economic and environmental accounting we've we've shown that the plantation sector is nearly three times more lucrative to the state from the central highlands area relative to the native forest sector. We've also seen that uh, the number of jobs in the tourism industry is roughly ten to twenty times that of the native forest sector. So, so really, in terms, if you were thinking about this in terms of economic return, talking about this in terms of uh, social contribution, in terms of employment to the state, you would not do what you are doing now, because it's economic madness. You would change the way you are doing things to employ more people to bring more money into the state, to bring more money into that region and provide more opportunities for more people. And that's exactly not what is happening at the moment. And I would be calling on the state government to radically rethink what it's doing and do it urgently, because essentially it's squandering a really important resource for the people of Victoria and for the people of the rest of Australia.
0: And this Great Forest National Park that has been proposed, which does encompass a huge range of these towns and surrounding areas in the forest, it obviously includes Tulangi in that as well as uh, Marysville and Healesville. What has been the history behind the Great Forest National Park? Because it's been on the table for quite a while and we've had various lukewarm signals that it's under consideration. Why haven't we had a significantly positive response from government on that?
1: Uh, the reason that we haven't had a positive response from it is that the, the the native forest timber industry has many allies within government. So essentially, many state government agencies, um, they're actually very pro-logging. They're actually arguing strongly in favour of maintaining the status quo. And then we have the union movement, the CFMEU, that's lobbying the state government very hard. And you've got the timber industry itself even though there's only seven sawmills in the Central Highlands now, that you heard right, not 70, not 700, but seven sawmills in the whole of the Central Highlands region. Those organisations are lobbying government uh, every moment that we can speak, every moment that we can think they are lobbying state government to maintain their status with essentially a resource-rent-free access to those forests, and so it's very hard to change government policy on these things when you have very strong lobbying from not only within government agencies but also externally from the union movement and from industry. So the so the reality is that every single Melbourneian that drinks water, every single Mer- Melbourneian that breathes the air, every single Melbourneian that lives in that city, that beautiful city, is basically having that very important resource discounted by the government, which is supposed to manage that public resource for the maximum public good, which it's not presently doing. So this is why we've still got this problem, despite all the evidence that we should change the policy. And so this is what we're up against, to change policy in the face of uh, incredible lobbying, Uh, An incredible vested interest and this is not unusual for the forest industry this happens worldwide but it also happens in fishing industries and as we've seen more recently on the ABC Four Corners program It also happens in the water industry and elsewhere. So natural resource industries tend to subvert the system to maximize the benefits for a small number of people that that do well out of it and, and massively discount the benefits to a large number of people that should otherwise benefit from the use of those resources. This is not uncommon, unfortunately, and it means that really the only way to change these things is through people power to uh, create their support for something that's sensible, like a change like this, and force governments to make those changes when it's It's blindingly obvious from the science and the social science and the economics that that's what has to happen.
0: Indeed, and let's just remind everyone that is it about 96% of the forests that we're talking about are publicly owned forests and land?
1: That's correct. So these forests are owned by the people of Victoria. These are public forests and these forests are meant to be managed for the maximum public good. Mm. And the economic and environmental accounts data clearly shows that that is not the case at present. And uh, while I've still got a a breath left in my body, I will continue to tell everybody that that's the case until the government makes the right decision, the sensible decision, the scientific decision, the economic decision to move towards a great forest national park. Now, the other thing that's important to realise here, Amy, is that the timber industry will not stop tomorrow there's two industries here there's a plantation industry and there's a native forest industry the plantation industry is actually uh, very economically robust and it's presently trying to compete with the native forest industry with two hands tied behind its back and we've seen it elsewhere around the world particularly in new zealand when that competitive disadvantage that they have is taken away, then the plantation sector goes ahead in leaps and bounds. And that's really what you want from Victoria anyway. And already in the state, 82% of all sawn timber comes from the plantation sector. So once it's got the native forest sector monkey off its back, then the plantation sector will be able to go ahead and, and really um, really move, move ahead with the times. So that's exactly what we've seen in places like New Zealand where, you know, they've bitten the bullet made the sensible economic and environmental decisions, and the plantation sector has really moved ahead in a big way.
0: Yes, it's a great uh, reminder that we're not talking about stopping logging altogether. We're talking about stopping logging in these really important ecosystems that are native forests. Obviously, plantations have a very specific purpose, and in a controlled way, they can be logged. And in terms of our state parliamentarians and politicians, what has been their response to the proposed Great Forest National Park?
1: Prior to the previous election, Leader of the Opposition, as he was then, Daniel Andrews, and his Shadow Environment Minister, Minister Lisa Neville, they came on a field trip with us and they were adamant that they wanted to implement a Great Forest National Park. They could see that the problems that the forests had. They were aware that very little sawlog timber was left. This is a really key issue. There is not a long life left now for the sawlog industry because of extensive past logging. So the key issue then is that we have on record, prior to the state elect last state election, the then Labor opposition and now Labor government made a commitment, a commitment in writing to me. And I have, I have the letter that was written to me committing to the establishment of a great forest national park. And so now the science is even more overwhelming than it was in 2013, December 2013, when we made that field trip. And I think that it's really time to make the right decision for the state, for economic growth, for job opportunities, and for the forest itself and the water supply for the city of Melbourne. It's quite clear what to do, and there's been a promise made, and every politician needs to keep their promises, uh, especially when they make them for the general public. And this is a really important promise to keep for all Victorians and all Melburnians.
0: Let's just close out the conversation on a high note because um, I'm really glad that we have been able to get to the complexity of this issue and really feel the gravity of why it's important. I also want to talk about just why it's so beautiful on a personal note. So for you, David, given that you've been working in this forest for such a long period of time, I just wanted to hear from you. What are your favourite aspects when you visit areas like Tulangui State Forest and the other areas around it in the Central Highlands? What are some of the most Beautiful aspects and animals And birds for you
1: uh, I, I, I um, yeah, that's, a, that's a good question um, It's it's a deep part of my psyche Those mountain ash forests And it's probably the reason why I'm so passionate About them and why I'm so passionate For a change because uh, I'm also um, Melbourne I'm a Melbourne person by birth i spent a long time living in Victoria And, and I love the state. Uh, as I love the city. Um, I think that there are so many aspects of the forest that I, that I deeply enjoy. I probably, one of my favourite things to do is to do bird plots. When I'm in those forests, where we're um, going to the long-term monitoring sites that we've established over the years and counting and recounting and recounting the birds on those, those sites. I love listening to the, to the bird calls. Uh, it's a very peaceful activity. It's also where my mind starts working, and I get lots of ideas for, for our next scientific, scientific papers. Um, I've, it's, it's a part of the forest that's really shaped my whole career. So I have a, a sort of a, a deep gratitude to that forest for the way I think and the way I work. And um, it's, it's a, legacy, a legacy that I would really love to be able to share with millions of other people from, from Victoria. Um, so that they have an opportunity to to be able to experience even just a little bit of what I've been able to experience over the last three decades.
0: Thank you, David. Um, I couldn't agree more and and I think that, I would also concur with you that um, the bird songs were one of the most moving and beautiful parts of my brief visit um, a week and a half ago to, uh, to Lange State Forest. And I did actually record the sounds on the Kalatha Giant Tree Walk, which I will play for um, everyone right now. So thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And um, I, I really hope now that we can get a lot more people down there and to visit this this whole area of the Central Highlands, and to truly appreciate the ecosystem that exists.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers.
0: And that was my interview with Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is based at the ANU and is a prolific researcher of the Central Highlands, Mountain Ash Forests. Highly recommend looking up um, some of his writing. He's published for CSIRO. He's uh, published in journals. He's written op-eds and just a really a wonderful guy. Um, And as I did mention, I went on uh, the Kalatha Giant Tree Walk and took a little bit of a a voice sound recording um, on my iPhone. So apologies if it's not perfect in terms of sound quality, but I think this is really beautiful and it, it will just give you a, a little bit of a brief sense of what it's like to be there in an audio sense. just a little bit of the the bird sounds and songs that you can hear if you're in the Tulangi State Forest, which is part of the Central Highlands and features some beautiful mountain ash trees. And a bit of a shout-out to Tulangi Tavern, which is just on the way to the State Forest. Highly recommend their mulled wine, and it's a beautiful place to stop before and or after any trip. Um, You don't need to... uh, rough it you can have the creature comforts as well so um, just make note that uh, you just need to drive through the Yarra Valley to get to this beautiful place in Victoria. Um, I went to the Tulangi State Forest but there are so many other aspects of this broader proposed Great Forest National Park that you yourself can also visit so I hope you enjoy that interview.